Hello and welcome to the Plants and My Pets podcast where we talk about all things plants. I am Tegan. Hello, I am Joram. And you're sick again. Yes. Well done. <laughs> what have you been up to in the last week? Um, I, I was sick. Um, we had some storms. I was cleaning up some of the stuff that flew in our garden, but not that much. We were lucky. And I saw a pig today. And chicken. <laughs> what? This is not new. This is hardly a story, I would say. You saw a pig. Yes. Um, like, on the TV or in real <laughs> life? or On a farm. On a farm for kids. And wow. Yes. I mean, my life is just very, very exciting right now. I, I'm at home with sick kids that get me sick. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that, that like, that much happens. Growing <laughs> up, my parents would say, if you're sick enough to stay home, you're sick enough to not see pigs. Like, that was actually the standard, like... Yeah, I didn't go to see the pigs for my own benefit. That was that was not what I do when I have some free time finally available. I'm like, oh, I just assume. now I can go and see the pigs now that I have some time left over. I mean, in Germany, you have a lot of, like, uh, expressions that are related to pigs, right? There's, like, I am the happiness of the pig or something, like... No, you can say that you had a pig. And I have, that means I have you, a pig's. No you, no, you had. It's it's always in past tense that you had a pig. And Can it you means say you, it in German? you were lucky. Ich hab Schwein gehabt. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a pig. And that means yeah, at one point I was lucky in my life. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm 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 sorry, but that's what's going on in my life. What's going on in your life, Tegan? Yeah, also storms. I mean this has been the <laughs> I think I think I last week I was talking about <laughs> No, I did see a, a, a plastic bag blow past the window pretending to be that plastic bag from American Beauty. And I was like, no, you're not the real plastic bag. And that was basically the highlight of my week. Um, <laughs> last week, I went to see Wuthering Heights, which is, I think I told you about the wild and windy moor. And this week, Wuthering Heights had to get cancelled because it was too windy, which seemed really delightful. Like, <laughs> it's about wind. Anyway. Um, is it an open air show or why is the wind it affecting It was just really it? windy. I don't know. <laughs> I think I think this country is a little bit sort of like balancing on tender hooks. Like they have a sign on the train saying like leaves sometimes fall on the tracks and then we have to stop the trains. And <laughs> surely that's a seasonal thing that happens for like three months a year. Like that's called autumn and then <laughs> then leaves fall. <laughs> like how is that a reason to stop here? And I say this like as an Australian, our trains stop when it gets too hot and it's always hot. But Really? <laughs> yes. I also wanted to see a different play called The Book of the Dust. And the whole reason I went, I mean, not the whole reason, but it was supposed to have a live baby in the show. So I went to like watch this baby actor because everyone was like, this, the, the baby was an amazing actor. Like it was such a good actor, this baby. And then we went there and I don't know, the baby was sick or something. Like it had taken the day off or like the wind made it too hard for the baby to like commute to work or something. And it was just a doll <laughs> the whole time. And I spent the whole time like peering at this doll really intently to see if it would move. And I just... I think it was just a doll the whole time. Like, they, yeah. So they're gaslighting you to think it's the baby. Yeah, some um, <laughs> weird, weird times. Those those Santa Ana winds. Yeah. Um. Otherwise, I I was told I had to watch a film, Little Joe, which is about a genetically modified plant that releases some sort of pollen and makes people love it. And as it turns out, I was like, this sounds vaguely familiar. We we actually talked about this over a year ago. Yeah. On the like a year and a half ago when it first came out, I think, um, that we should watch this. And we never watched this. I've now watched half of it. And most of what I thought in the first half of the film was, why is there a dog in the greenhouse? Like, 
they have like they have greenhouses which actually remind me enough of our old workplace like proper science building kind of mm-hmm. big greenhouses with those tables that sort of shift across um oh yeah you i know. like those yeah but like in the in the middle section there's like a dog roaming around I'm just like this is not Yes. This is not okay. This is not how you contain GMO inside a greenhouse. And also, whenever whenever there's a dog at the start of like a slightly creepy film, which this was going to be, you know the dog's dying, right? Like, spoiler alert, but you know the dog's dying. Yeah, So probably. anyway, um, Yoram, you're not going to watch that movie. I'm going to watch the rest of that movie. And then this is your homework. This is like the... <laughs> then we do another... Um, Plants and Pets does movies um, pre-show <laughs> like we did with, with yeah. Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up is a movie that haunts me. It's too many things that remind me of that movie. So I I won't be talking about this much more. (laughs) It's not fun. Instead, let's maybe talk about the paper of the week. Yoram. It's the paper of the week. This week's paper um, is something I found in Science Advances, a 2.4 angstrom structure of the double ring Gemma-Timonas phototrophica photosystem um, by, oh no, I made, I took a screenshot, but I made it too small to read the name, so wait for me, Wireless, by uh, Pujang and uh, from the lab of Michal Kobicek. And from the labs, I think, oh, oh, there's a two-steer click thing, School of Biosciences, University of Sheffield. Um, And yeah, it's a structure paper. These are often a little bit dry. I had Mm -hmm. to read a lot of them for the stuff that I was working with because I worked... In your PhD? Yeah, Mm -hmm. my PhD. I worked with a photosystem, photosystem one. And at the time, new structures were published about that looked at it in much more detail. So I had to actually read the often very dry papers and understand them. Speaking speaking of dry, can we break the title down a bit? So 2.4 angstrom. What's an Armstrong? That's the distance between two, I think, carbon atoms. Um, so that's um, a measure to to measure up molecules and atom atom uh, atomic structures. So 2.4 angstrom. That's a very small distance and that means that's the resolution that they were looking at yeah so basically the lower that number the the higher quality the structure yeah. because you've like zoomed in more yeah um yeah it's it's equal to 10 to the negative 10 meters one ten billionth of a meter a hundred millionth of a centimeter it's a very small amount really, really <laughs> tiny and then okay so we had the 2.4 Armstrong structure of the double ring yeah, that's something. Come back to that, maybe. Yeah, and then let's start with this: the Gematomonas phototropica. Yoram, this isn't the plant. Yeah, this isn't the plant. Um, this is not. It's not even close to a plant, realistically speaking. No, um, but it does photosynthesis, and as we often talk about uh, organisms that don't do photosynthesis, I in a sort of inverted way looked at this and was this does photosynthesis therefore we care about it okay that seems fair um this is actually a bacterium and bacteria were also important for plants right i mean there's the whole story of how plants actually learned how to do photosynthesis do you want me to tell the story yes please tell the story because i forgot the details once upon a time, there was a single-celled organism called Fred, and he had already taken up a proto-bacteria, which was becoming a symbiont. It, it then became an organelle called the mitochondria. So Fred was already a single cell who had a mitochondria, 
And over time, Fred ran across a cyanobacteria, a small green bacteria that was doing photosynthesis. And Fred decided to eat that bacteria. But unfortunately, Fred did not realize he was very full and he could not digest that bacteria. So instead, it sat inside him and it became an endosymbiont. So uh, a friend inside him. And then over time, it became an organelle called a chloroplast. I think I just actually made that harder to understand than it is from the basic story. <laughs> you guys, a single cell took up a green thing that was a bacteria and that green thing that was a bacteria eventually became yeah. the, the chloroplast. Yeah, um, it, it wasn't digested. It, it hung around and continued to do what it did on its own before. Which yeah, is and that, yeah, complex, complex. And the thing about this is the formation, all plants came from that one event, basically. That's kind of the yeah. the star of the show as far as every green thing you see basically out there, it is its ancestor is Fred. Yeah, every green um, multicellular thing that you see. Because if you Aha, see that's a good point because <laughs> if you see green like non multicellular things, small bacteria they obviously did not originate from this uh, symbiotic event. Uh, they have been there before this event happened, and they're still around today. And these are just yeah bacteria that, instead of just eating chemicals and taking their energy from that, they can actually take the energy from sunlight. And there's a couple of different ones, and I had to look this up. And technically, I learned some of this in university, but this is um, ages ago. Uh, there's five big classes that are often um, like grouped together for photosynthetic bacteria. There's the cyano cyanobacteria, that is the stuff that we usually know. Um, this in itself is a very diverse group, but they often use uh, chlorophyll as a pigment, and therefore they are green or like bluish green, and they are the closest to plants. You often have stuff that's been researched in cyanobacteria that can be then transferred to some things in plants as well, uh, or some things, some other things are very different, but they're often group, group to, grouped together in research of plants. I was part of a research consortium where some people were looking at cyanobacteria, other people were looking at algae, and some people like me were looking at plants, and we all could learn stuff from one another. So this is sort of the bacteria that are the most interesting to plant direct plant research, I would say. Yeah, I mean that's the 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 ancestor is the precursor of the chloroplast, so that's the sort of direct yeah. relationship there. On the other hand, we have some other groups, proteobacteria, the purple guys, um can't split water, not as cool, but purple. I mean, I don't know anything about this apart from that. Um, anoxic, they like living where there's no oxygen. Yes, um, this is a big distinction here. Like the cyanobacteria, they actually produce oxygen in the, the way they do photosynthesis. And the other guys we have in here um, often don't, and they're often actually killed by oxygen. So there's also the heliobacter um, that makes something that's called bacteriochlorophyll, so a bacterial variant of chlorophyll. Um, they also like to grow without any oxygen and they also they can use only photosynthesis as a supplement of their diet, but they can't just live off sunlight alone. And then there's also things like chlorobi, um, which are green sulfur bacteria that you find in deep sea sediments. They really hate oxygen. That's why they are so far away from oxygen. Um, I wonder how they actually 
take up light if they are in sea sediments, but um, this is what I found about them. And then there's a chloroflexi group, which is a very diverse group. It's sort of the other group. All other things that you can't really put in the other boxes, you put it with the chloroflexi. And um, the, some of them, they do, they, they like for uh, oxygen. Some of them, they don't like it. And yeah, it's, it's sort of a very mixed bag here. Um, but what's important about these is that uh, the, the photosynthesis works differently or the, the, the photosynthetic machinery, the proteins that they actually do the light capture, they work differently from what we find in plants. So most of the time we have a, a sort of a simplified bullseye structure. In the center, you have something called the reaction center. That does sort of the magic, and then you have one ring around it. Sorry, by doing the magic, you mean that's where the light's coming in, and we're getting some sort of yeah, where the energy is transferred from electro electromagnetic wave energy to. Uh, or that's maybe too specific, but that's where from sort of physical energy, which is light, you get chemical energy, which then the plant can use. Um, that's in the reaction center. Uh, and then around that, you have a ring. That's the light harvesting subunits. That's like an antenna. That's a solar collector. That's the thing that where the light hits on and then energy is, is um, transferred from the ring to the center and then chemical energy is made there. Mm. <laughs> I try to make it very like simplistic and I know that I say stuff like energy is made, which is physically speaking wrong. <laughs> but... Yeah, but, um, if you really look, go into these things, it's always very complex because then you have the excitation I mean, energy that, that gets transferred and that excitation is then transferred into an, a moving electron and the moving electron is then made into actual molecules and it's very complicated. That's why I would also, say stuff like they make energy. Also in fairness, like I, I, I know you're speaking generally sort of about, about how photosynthesis is working, but I understand so little about all these weird bacteria dudes that if you said they make energy, I'd be like... <laughs> maybe why not they live in sludges like at the bottom of the sea like like po possibly who who knows where energy really comes from like <laughs> i also do not understand physics that is clear <laughs> okay yeah. so where are we we have the photosynthesis machinery yes um yeah so just but it's different in bacteria than it is in plants in bacteria you have this bullseye structure a ring mm -hmm. with a center in the middle and this is how you most often you find the way they do photosynthesis okay so in this paper we're now looking at a weird sort of kind of new-ish organism so this is a when was it described? Quite recently, I think. I think in the 2000s. It's like less than 20 years ago that they actually described this, the whole phylum. Yeah. Not, not only the specific organism, the whole group that organism is in. So the, the, whole, the whole phylum is called Gematomodum nadetes. I tried to say that fast that time. This is after <laughs> multiple practices. It's still not flowing for me. We need to take lang um, lessons in... Latin, I want to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this and also another phyla was only discovered in the 2000s. And also within the Gematimamonadetes phyla, not not all of the, the organisms there are able to do photosynthesis, right? Like this is quite a yeah. unique species. Um, and you can maybe guess that from the fact that the species name is Gematomonas, but then Phototropica. So it's like the guy who can do photosynthesis, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's sort of 20 years or so since it's been discovered. 
Yeah, and they discovered it actually in a in a lake, um, a freshwater lake, which isn't too special, but in the Gobi Desert. So, um, in a rather hostile environment, um, they they found this little bug uh, growing and and doing photosynthesis there. I'm just trying to look at the original. Oh, so I think it's discovered by the same group in 2015. So it's it's really recent, and it's also um, this Michael, um, who's the lead author mm. here, is seems to be the same. Oh, okay. Uh, so w- what they actually did then in the paper is that they isolated the photosynthetic machinery, the actual proteins, isolated those, put them at something like 97 Kelvin, um, so that's minus 200 degrees Celsius or something like that, um, into a big machine, <laughs> into an electron microsco- microscope. Uh, and then I just looked at the methods to f- try to understand what's going on. I just remember that they did 20,000 images or movies, they called it, of this protein sample. And from that, with very complicated software algorithms, um, they could then calculate the actual structure of the thing. And this is what this paper is about. They are describing at great detail, uh, because they have Mm -hmm. such a high resolution, the structure of this photosynthesis machine. And it's quite interesting. And that's why I, I picked it, because unlike the regular bacterial type and also unlike anything that you find in plants this thing has a double belt of um, light harvesting antenna around it so you have again this reaction center in the in the middle where the magic happens but then you not only have one ring of antenna you have two rings of antenna that are surrounding the center that are all collecting the light energy okay what's what's the purpose of that why do they think that's why but why um, it changes the, the color that it can see. It's in the range of 800 na- uh, nanometers. So that's in the red to far red um, wavelength. Uh, so these, this additional ring, it extends sort of the, the qualities of light that this photosystem can see. Okay, so so this far, this red and far red, um, like plants, they don't use this very much for their photosynthesis. They sort yeah. of are a little bit blind in these kind of yeah. bits. They can maybe see it for some signaling action, so they are able to sense it, but they don't really get any energy from it. Mm-hmm. So um, the plant, cl- uh, like the the longest wavelength that plants usually use for their energy is below 700 nanometers, and this is the bacteria do it at around 800, uh, 800 to 816 to be precise. Okay, so they can see they can see this is like broadening what they can see so they're seeing like kind of the normal stuff that a plant can yeah. see and i mean not just see but they use that but then they're also using this extra red stuff yeah what's i mean they're in a desert aren't they getting enough light why why do we need extra light or um that's a good it's- question i would also imagine that they are able to capture more light but maybe if they're in the water the water absorbs light very efficiently so Maybe they it's can, a very muddy environment, or I'm not sure. Like, yeah, or they can grow at greater depths and still get enough light. Um, that's something I think. I try to look up the organism and see what we know about the organism and how it grows, and there's not much known yet because it's no. so so recent that we discovered it. Um, so I I don't know that. Uh, I know that this double ring structure. What it does is that it's very stable. That's uh, it's anchored with multiple like proteins very stably together so that even in the highlight it can't be damaged and and fall apart very easily mm-hmm. um and what's also interesting here is that the the two rings here they are made from the same 
um, uh, compounds, so the same proteins in there, there's only one additional protein in the outer ring uh, that makes makes it possible that you have the outer ring here, which is interesting from a, from a sort of construction point of view, that this thing doesn't use a lot of special parts to make this additional structure that you don't find in other in other uh, bacteria. Instead, it just added one little protein there and was then able to make a second ring and have different properties and more stable properties for its reaction, like his photosynthetic machinery. Do they know specifically where this protein came from? Like, did it evolve from another similar protein with the same species or did it steal it from a different species or how did this protein sort of evolve? Uh, it, they say that it evolved within the the, the genus, within, not, or not even the genus, within the species mm -hmm. afterwards. Um, and that's something we haven't talked about yet is where it actually got all of these these um, proteins, how it, yeah. how it became photosynthetic. And as you said, yeah, they they stole it. Um, I guess this is something we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before that you know to get new genes you can either sort of make your own which is often like you duplicate what you've got and then you specialize like you sort of shift them around a bit and change things it takes a lot of time usually it's, it's yeah. a long process or you just like nick them from something else you just yeah. <laughs> steal genes and this is called horizontal gene transfer yeah and in this case um this was a very long distance horizontal gene transfer. Uh, we so that means the species that stole it from is not a close cousin or anything. It's yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't um, mean like from a different country. It means like um, a very different organism. <laughs> that would be fun though. Imagining having a bacteria connection across. <laughs> across Doesn't the make sea. sense. That makes absolutely no. I mean. Yeah. No, but. Um, evolution on a on a genetic relationship level very distant relationship um because it's from an entirely different phylum um that they got this the, the genes from we don't ex uh, know precisely what the um proteobacterial ancestor is that they got it from but they know it's proteobacteria and proteobacteria are a different um phylum than the gemma timona datis um mm. and this in itself is something special. We don't see that very often. Very often you find between closely related bacteria, you find horizontal gene transfer. Um, okay, so the proteo are the purple ones, right? Yeah. And not all of the purple ones actually also can use light anyway. I think that's only a few of them. Is that correct? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we're both not bacterial it was um, experts. way out of my depth here. Proteo bacteria. Okay, and then it stole it from some of them. Yeah. Interesting. But it stole all of the genes that it uses, except for that one that makes the additional second ring. That's something that it evolved itself, probably from like an internal copy of one of the previous genes and then and, mutating it over time. And then and we know that it made it itself because we don't see that gene in any other species. Yeah. Is that the argument? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's it's based on that. With that, you could always imagine that at one point we find a different species that has this additional subunit. But so far, this is the only creature, the only organism that we know that makes this structure, this makes this thing of uh, a double ring for, uh, photosynthetic machinery. So I guess I'm sort of interested into what this implies, because we're always, we've discussed before the idea that maybe we can modify useful plants, crop plants, by making them be able to absorb different wavelengths of light. So this has been a discussion. There's also some types of chlorophyll, I think, from like deep sea organisms, which can actually take broader wavelengths. They can mm -hmm. capture some of the light that land plants 
can't. So I'm guessing there's some next steps involved here, which include maybe first knocking out that special protein to see what happens to this organism if you get rid of that second ring, then maybe adding it to other organisms to see if they can get these kind of ring-like structures, um, if there's anything closely related enough that you can sort of do. I, I guess one of the problems here is this guy is is sort of alone so far in its... Yeah in its whole phyla, so that might be a bit trickier, but I guess we've got a lot of manipulation experiments coming up. Yes, and even more uh, exciting stuff, if we think about the whole field of synthetic biology, where people take individual individual genes, but more often gene clusters of uh, like a whole pathway of, uh, of enzymes that work together, and put that from one organism into another and try to create sort of functions at will in a new organism. Sometimes they go from from scratch. There have been examples where they completely made up their own genome and then put that into an empty shell of a bacterium and then kickstart that. Or sometimes they use stuff like E. coli, a very common bacterium, and then add new skills to that. You could imagine that you take all of the, um, the genes in here because, you know, they were transferred at one point as one block and it worked. So you mm-hmm. could imagine to do that to 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 do that again and take the whole block, put that in E. coli or another fitting um, receptacle, and then you have a new bacterium that can grow in in light. And that, while being speculative and and very early steps, they they think about that in the paper in, in the last um, paragraph, uh, the the potential for synthetic biology to to further think about this uh, this these gene clusters and the way that they were horizontally transferred between different uh, organisms there's kind of there's a term for this right this these are super genes is that is that what we're using this idea of sort of a block of genes that you know all work together to control sort of one feature or one function like the the flowering time or how big the seeds are like and then they're often moved around together they're often like physically mm-hmm. located close together i think there's like this idea of, of super genes that we've mm. we've maybe yeah. discussed before on the podcast <laughs> could maybe. be but then <laughs> at this point who knows um, yeah yeah but so that was uh, a small dive into the world of uh, photosynthesis in bacteria this was 2.4 angstrom structure of the double ring gamma timonas phototrophica photosystem by Pujan uh, from the lab of Michal Kobicek. But I have to say there's lots of names on this paper, so I imagine it was a very complicated um, mm. way to, to resolve this, these, these structures and published in Science Advances. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I think seeing as we're talking about playing around with photosynthesis and putting things in and taking things out, we have to mention a story that um, is kind of big this week. It came up on the Science Daily News. And I don't know, Yoram, if you've seen it, but uh, they took a cyanobacteria, cynocosystis, I think. Yep. Um, That they had already removed photosystem two from. So it doesn't have photosystem two. So one of the the two photosystems Mm -hmm. for photosynthesis. And instead, they drove photosynthetic electron transports, this this normal part of photosynthesis, um, using sort of like power, like <laughs> electricity. Um, so they've made this kind of hybrid system that is part living organism and part cyborg. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cyborg. I don't know. Um, t- 
technology fused with photosynthetic life is the the discussion. Um, okay. So it's kind of just a cool feat, generally. Um, the idea is that Photosystem 2 is a little bit problematic because it tends to explode quite easily. So if it gets too much light, it just panics and shuts down. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's one part of it that breaks really easily and this is quite problematic. So their argument is that if you can get rid of Photosystem 2 and put something else in its place, you can um, improve photosynthetic performance at very high light intensities so you don't have this explosion issue. And then another thing that was suggested was that you can actually drive the electricity itself by photovoltaic cells, which do not have the problem that plants and, and other uh, organisms have with this wavelength. So then you could, the photovoltaic cells themselves can take up almost all wavelengths instead of, you know, ignoring those far red lights. So now you're like also widening the wavelengths that mm -hmm. can be put into this. Um, very experimental, really kind of crazy, cool, interesting sort of science. And this, so this came out in um, the Journal of American Chemical Society this week. And then kind of similar to that, but also completely different, um, people have fused, well, they've created like organic, organo-electrochemical neurons, so like nerve cells um, that have been... So like the, the nerve and the synapse, it's artificially made, it's sort of printed... Um, printed organic electrochemical transistors, which I'm not sure I can even imagine what that is. I saw a picture, but I'm still a bit like, what is that? Printed organic electrochemical transistors. Anyway, they hooked those up to a plant to show that you can basically create this artificial neuron structure that then can interact with a living organism mm -hmm. um, and have sort of this stimulus come and then have a response Guess which plant they use. If you were doing this experiment and you wanted to see a response, what plant would you use? A mimosa. Because it Pretty close. They use the Venus flytrap, fly oh, so yeah. snappy, snappy. Yeah, so they're showing that you can send this signal um, and it will respond and it, they get like the closing of the Venus yeah, cool. flytrap. Um, we can link that. And yes, Yoram, there are videos at the end showing these <laughs> um, sort of spikes. It does have, um, in the video, it has two spikes and then it closes. And I think we've discussed this before that the, mm -hmm. the flytrap actually needs like two signals in order to, like two close signals before it will close. It won't close yeah. just from being touched once. You have to like tap yeah. it twice, double tap. Like a small little insect that struggles for its life and then then it knows that there's really an insect in there instead of just a piece yeah, of dust. Yeah, it's all about the struggle, guys. <laughs> um, but I think that's, that's kind of two quite cool cyborg-y things that are yeah. happening. And, you know, just to remember it happened with the plants and, and the the cyanobacteria first. Um. <laughs> but yeah, especially the Photosystem 2 stuff, is uh, I find that really exciting because I've In seen fairness, it's hard to do that in animals. Like, that's yeah. fair dues to the mice, really hard to get. <laughs> sort of editing or like playing around with photosystems in yeah, animals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. we can take the whole gene cluster from bacteria and put that in a mouse and then we have... <laughs> I'm sure somebody's done that, mice. right? I'm sure that's already... I, I, yeah. But There's I, those sloths that like cover themselves in algae. I don't think they cover themselves. I think they're just too slow and the algae grows on them. But everybody's like, oh, the algaes. Yeah, and it's not really providing significant energy to, to the sloth. It I might think be cooling them though. It, it might be. All, Keeping them moist. Yeah, maybe moist. But on the other hand, these things usually make create a little bit of heat, right? A tiny amount of heat. That's 
compared to a sloth, no. And, but Evaporative cooling. Well, then it's drying. I don't know. Yeah. Don't sloths, know. if there are any sloths listening, get back to us. We, we but, don't but have with, all the answers. With Photosystem 2 and its uh, instability, I, I remem uh, remember a couple of sort of technical applications where they isolated chloroplasts and then they put them on facades of buildings and stuff uh. or on prototypes. And of course, they all like died at one point because the Photosystem 2 got damaged and in an isolated chloroplast, you don't have anything to repair it. And then you have like green juice sitting there that can't do any photosynthesis anymore. But if you would replace the Photosystem 2, then you could put green juice on the walls that actually <laughs> capture sunlight. Uh, I imagine that at this point, it, they did it in a lab with very fine like electrodes and stuff that's... And I Hard guess like scale. two of them, not a, a wall's worth of yeah. these. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this is this is what's happening in the world. I did so that that second one um, with the Venus flytrap. So organic electrochemical neurons and synapses with iron mediated spiking, and that came out in Natcoms also this week. So hmm. we'll put the link there as well. I have um, a question, Tegan. Imagine. We are going for a hike and we find a fossil mm. and then we study the fossil and suddenly we both know how to study fossils. Okay. But then you want to draw what the plant used to look like based <laughs> on the fossil. How would you know which green to pick from your... You have all of the shades of green in front of you. How to decide which ones to pick? Is it a very bright green? Is it a bluish green? Is it a pale green? Um... How would you go forward? I would look at what the like climate conditions were at the time and sort of see what the expected light would have been in that area and then also get an idea of the other vegetation and where it grew in the context of that vegetation. Usually stuff like in the undergrowth is going to be darker green um, than stuff that's like outside you know stuff in australia where it's it's too hot and too light it's kind of not green it's gray um so i would sort of use those climate and bio cues i guess but if i didn't have that i guess i would just pick my favorite green and go with that <laughs> and then just tell every yeah i think i just even pick a different color and be like you know what purple <laughs> and then put like in really small print you know how they always have these amazing like micrograph pictures and they're like in small print false colors and you're like oh, i see <laughs> so i would just make it like something really snazzly and like sparkly and be like yeah False, false colors. I mean, it's a good idea to to think about the context of the plants. However, often when you find the fossils, it's really hard to distinguish did they grow together or did they just sediment together and became fossils together. Okay. Um, so that's unfortunately not a really uh, promising road. Um, but so that's another, wrong. <laughs> yeah, but it's something that they that the people that I'm talking about, so paleobotanists and artists that work together as paleobotanists, is something they really consider when they when they draw the pictures. How did the plants grow together? What was the context? Did was this an understory plant or this is, was this a small plant growing in an empty field? And mm. this is just something that we can't really reliably answer as of yet because when even if you find fossils together, you don't know. If they've grown together or if they just uh, fall, fell to the ground together. Are there dinosaurs at the time? Mm -hmm. Can I look to see like if the plant is in the stomach of certain types of dinosaurs 
end that might indicate how tall it was growing. And if there was, no, that's not really that helpful, is it? I just wanted <laughs> no, to bring dinosaurs into the story. No, I'm sorry. The main distinction really that you can do is between um, the, the, the plants in general. When you look at them, you have evergreen plants and you have non-evergreen plants. And mm -hmm. evergreen plants tend to be darker and more bluish in color. And the non-evergreen plants in general are often a, a brighter paler green which comes down um, to the fact that you have more leaf mass per area for evergreens so they have thicker leaves um, mm -hmm. the evergreens and then that increases the color value or makes it a dark appear darker essentially but in the fossils you can't really measure the thickness because um this is often no the leaf mass per area is data that you don't have because it's it's dried out you can't really calculate the mass there but you can measure the cuticle which is the outer layer uh, of, a, of a plant leaf and this correlates to the leaf mass and you can use that as a proxy and this is what they did um, in this in this story that we're linking science and culture artists join paleobotanists to bring ancient plants to life um, and this is one of the ways they, they thought about this problem, how, which color to pick. And then based on the cuticle that you could measure in the fossils, they thought this might be more of on the evergreen side or more on the, what is the opposite of evergreen? Um, the the daceous? Um, uh, but yeah, on the non-evergreen side of things. And this could then inform us how to draw these plants. Of course, this is not precise. This doesn't mean that, that they will be 100% correct, but it's better than a random guess, hopefully. Um, mm -hmm. In the story, they also have another interesting thing where they wonder, now that you have the, the leaf imprint, you have sort of a flat imprint in your fossil. How do you draw that on the, on the stem of a plant? Is it sticking upright? Is it sort of hanging downwards? Oh, okay. Is it... Um, and in, in this case, they took the closest living relative of the plant that they wanted to draw, and that's ginkgos. And then they say in the story, with help of the family, civil engineers in the family, they came up with, an, with a little experiment, and they attached small weights to the leaves and then figured out when, to, uh, when the leaves would bend. And then they would find materials, tested different household materials that bend in the same way as the leaves of the ginkgo. So they attach the same way to paper and cardboard and plastic sheet and see how they bend. And if they bend in the same way, they think, oh, this is a good replacement for the leaf. Then they cut out the shape of the fossil out of that material. In this case, it was photocopier paper that had the best um, mm -hmm. similarity. And then they could put that leaf in real size and see how it would hang down or stand up. And then they realize, oh, it actually has like a little crease from the leaf vein. So they crease the paper. And from that, they could see how it would behave. And they could use that to, to draw it. Because in previous drawings, they sort of just had a straight up drawing of the leaf. And they realized with this little experiment that this was physically impossible. It would always bend down a little bit, um, given the properties based on, on a, if it's anything like a ginkgo leaf. And with that, they could increase the quality of of these drawings. That's quite cool, huh? Yeah. And so the importance of that is often in the museum context, they draw these big murals or images to also make people excited about uh, organisms from the past. And there you want to be uh, accurate um, and yeah, realistic with the stuff that you draw. You don't want to have uh, sort of just Hollywood-type Jurassic Park thing. Um, which is 
yeah, often often people focus on the dinosaurs and less about the vegetation. They call it like dinosaur in a car park when you have <laughs> a dinosaur on empty ground because the p- person who who drew the dinosaur had no idea about the plants there, so they didn't draw any plants if it, if the dinosaurs were just roaming barren lands. And the paleobotanists call this in the dinosaur in a car park. Speaking speaking of dinosaurs, it's not it's not super related to plants, but it's kind of related and it's kind of contextually relevant. There's a paper that just came out today in Nature and they've now timed the asteroid hitting and wiping out like I think seventy five percent of all species on Earth. That happened in northern spring, boreal springtime. Mm-hmm. Um so now, <laughs> but also 66 million years ago, so don't panic. Um, <laughs> and this might be quite significant because if you imagine like spring is kind of a fragile time of year for mm-hmm. animals and plants, like you've just made it through winter and you know, you've got low energy. So it, it means that this might be one of the reasons why there's not an even loss of species across the southern and northern hemisphere because like the northern hemisphere species might have been a bit more fragile in their you know energy reserves and you know mm-hmm. you've just got young all those young are suddenly wiped out these so it's, it can eat more rapidly put yeah an end to lineages if you're in springtime than if you're you know at, at the end of summer or something like that mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of cool um and yeah. i also wanted to mention that because the the popular science reports on this have really beautiful drawings artists renditions of dinosaurs being hit by meteorites not not the physical dinosaur the world with the dinosaurs in it and that your dinosaur car park comment made me think of this i'm <laughs> going to send you one now um there's a really beautiful one with some pretty spring flowers in the foreground and some bird dinosaur just like crapping himself and running away <laughs> um while hellfire rains down on him or her. Um, so uh, this is one time where, you know, you can read the original article if you want to, but I would really encourage you to go to the pop side because it has the pictures. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of a cat fact that cat I saw fact. this week. You can do yours in a second, but I just saw something come up on New Scientist that is that rats can tell time. Is that not terrifying? <laughs> They, I, I, I can. I'll find the link and I'll put it in here. It's, it's new scientist. Um, but they basically trained the rats to press a button at a certain time interval, and it was like I think three point seven seconds. And if they pressed it like accurately enough, they got a reward, and they could learn to count three point seven seconds before they pressed the button. But not just that. Apparently, they knew if they had done well before the reward came, so they were like disappointed in themselves or something. If they. <laughs> Again, I haven't read the full article. A very but, uh, sad is, rat sitting there. I just like saw the headline and I was like, no, this, no, <laughs> I don't I, need this in my life. <laughs> this is not a fact that I want to bring today, but I also in another podcast, I, I learned about a paper that mosquitoes can learn. Speaking of things that we don't want to have intelligence, Wait, like like, like <laughs> but rats. what can they learn? Because they if they're learn, learning like... They can learn um, in, in many places we use chemical... Uh, yeah, chemicals on on skin and on nets to kill off the mosquitoes, and often stuff like DTT and others. There's a, a range of ke- chemicals. There. They're quite toxic, not only to to mosquitoes. That's why it's always very difficult to decide how much of to to use because you want to kill the mosquitoes, but if that gets in the groundwater, it can kill the fish and 
it's it's a problem. But they uh, looked in the study at sublethal doses of the compound, and they exposed mosquitoes to that. And then they the mosquitoes um, survived that, and then they could um, they had two experiments where they could choose two containers. One smelled like the chemical, and one didn't. And they chose the non-smelly container to rest instead of going into the smelly container to rest. So they remembered mm-hmm. that the smell is bad. And they had another experiments where they could fly towards a, a, a blood meal, um, uh, so their food source. But they had to go through a net that was sprayed with the chemical. And mm-hmm. the control group that didn't learn anything, they would fly towards the blood, hit the chemical, all of them would die. The ones that had the sublethal dosage before, they would want to go to the blood, they smell the chemical, and they turn away and they don't fly towards their, their meal. So they they um, rather starve than to experience again the chemical that almost killed them before. And that has... Big- I feel... I feel comfortable with that level of learning. Like, I know it's not good. I know it's, like, got really bad health implications, especially for, like, disease like malaria. But that's... I mean, they're smarter than zombies, but they're not, like, terrifying smart yeah, yet. They, they, they can't remember faces and learn yeah, exactly. complex well, like, numbers. I mean, most organisms can do that. Most organisms, if something, like, hurts them or, like, it causes them damage, they can learn to... Like, that's not super... I mean, maybe not most organisms, but that's not, like, insanely... Yeah. Yeah, they can't remember faces either. They can't tell other mosquitoes about the chemicals, I hope. I assume that would be concerning to me if they were not just the one who almost died, but like if he was then telling his friends and then now or if they like still went for the blood meal but sort of learned how to go around the barriers, that would also make me more anxious. I think that's Yeah. So I'm 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 not happy with the mosquitoes, but they're not making me as... Like, the rats can also drive cars, right? So the rats now can drive cars and can tell timing, which I can't drive a car, just as a reminder. This is a level of complexity that I have not yet reached, and I'm a little bit concerned. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's it's mostly that uh, the... Uh, mosquitoes are such a primitive organism that we usually don't think that they can actually learn and now we know that they have some ability to remember this and quite efficiently and that changes that should change the way we think about the application of these chemicals because if if they don't die they remember and they will avoid the chemical next time to avoid dying um which Sorry, can... before you go to the cat fact, I mean, you're just going to have to play the jingle again now. Um, <laughs> I also heard something like the best the bod- best podcast there is. No such thing as a fish. Maybe the second best podcast there is. Um, they had, <laughs> After plants and pets, of course. <laughs> actually, I was thinking baby geniuses, but okay, sure, I'll say that. <laughs> um, uh, like, I guess some of our favorite podcasts are baby geniuses and no such thing. Anyway... They had a fact about the seed vault at the Svalbard this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've sort of discussed this seed vault before. There was We did a paper on it, the fact that um, there had been return of some seeds to Syria um, sort of in post-war times and to replenish stocks there. Um, the fact was that men often write in offering to store their seed. <laughs> <laughs> the seed vault, which is barely a plant fact, so it's not really worthy of the show, but good grief. Men, get a grip on yourself. Good or work, don't. Men. <laughs> it's an honest mistake. I mean, it's, it's very cold up there, but it's just really funny. I don't know. It's something you can. Uh, just a question imagine you can being that plant like, scientist and just being like, seriously, another one? Like, s- seriously? 
30 seconds of Googling can help you there to, to figure out whether this is the right well, place to Well, I don't know. Maybe at one point you've got to be like, well, maybe they should have a sign on their website saying actually not that type of seed. Like maybe it's now on them. At, like at a certain point you say there are so many people who are misinterpreting this. Maybe it's not intuitive that it's not <laughs> it's... for human seed, that it's only for plant seeds. It needs to be spelled out. <laughs> it's true. From user testing, you would from like, <laughs> user interface design stuff, you would think... Even if you intend it, or if you think you communicated it well enough, if enough users make the mistake, then it's on you. Then you have to change yep. the, your messaging. <laughs> so, okay. Exactly. There's a threshold, and at a certain point, we've crossed the threshold where <laughs> it's not them, it's you. <laughs> okay, sorry, cat fact time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really want to, the jingle again? <laughs> It just drives home the fact even more that this is not about cats. Um, this is about um, a bird that you are very familiar with, magpies. And is it Australian magpies, though? It's ex Australian magpies. Uh, oh, I, th I think so. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, whoa, whoa. I just clicked on the, That's definitely an Australian magpie. <laughs> oh, clicked through on the link. <laughs> um, Australian magpies, they have a problem that um, it gets hotter and this then can kill off their brood and um, sometimes only like 10% survive. So that's really problematic. So researchers want to study magpies. Um, the problem is when you want to study birds, you want to track them. But magpies aren't, aren't tiny, but they're also not big like an eagle or something where you can put, like, strap a phone to it with a GPS on it, and then you can just see on Google Maps where they went. So you need something smaller. And in this case, they designed um, a new way of putting a little harness on them with a tracker. And... Um, then they wanted to test that in a pilot project. And the cool thing about that little tracker thing is um, to solve the problem of how to actually get the data off of this tracker because it can't send it over telecommunications because it would be larger and need a bigger battery. Um, they have to retrieve the trackers and they thought, hey, how about we make a cool little magnetic clasp that we can open with um, a stronger magnet from the outside, similar to the thing you find in like anti-theft stuff, I imagine, like in a when you buy clothes and they put it, pull it over mm. the magnetic table to release the, the thing. I think similar, um, similar mechanism at play here. So they made like these little backpacks for the magpies and they wanted, to, they trained them to come to a feeding station that would wirelessly or contactless recharge the tracker. So they would sit on this little feeding bay, like oh, a that's phone, so cool. recharge the tracker. And then when the experiment is over, when they would come, a magnet in the in the charging plate would open the harness and it would fall down and then it could retrieve it. Sorry, do you know how people are always like, oh, well, actually, if we didn't give so much money to army, then we wouldn't have all these cool inventions. Imagine if they gave all that freaking army money to the magpie scientists. This is insanely <laughs> cool stuff. Like, this is where we should be putting our dollars. Yeah, only only problem is that magpies are smarter than us. Um, they put that on, <laughs> on five birds of different status within the magpie community. They're very communal birds. Um, and... They, uh, within minutes um, or very few hours, they removed the harnesses, but not by themselves because the, the birds could not do this by themselves. The, the harnesses were designed in a way that the bird is stuck with it un unless the magnet opens. But other birds helped them. And this is, like, this is weird social behavior that we haven't seen that often in birds yet, that 
another magpie would come and help them get rid of the tracker and together they would find a way to like open the clasp and then remove the thing and independent of the status of the birds even sort of the alpha birds that they that they tracked even they received help even though sometimes magpies would be scared to approach these sort of dominant birds um but they they saw that something off is on them something that shouldn't be there and then they decided to help and get rid of the harnesses and so within the day the experiment was ruined because the magpies got rid of the harnesses and they have to now find a new way to conduct the experiment um i mean this was a pilot project this was designed to figure out stuff like that <laughs> problems mm-hmm. um like this that could arise and um yeah now they have to go back to a drawing board and figure out how to track magpies um without them triggering them helping each other to remove the tracker from their bodies this is really cool i think you should definitely click on the link that you're sharing because there's a magpie staring you down (laughs) which is a pretty common thing in australia i would say this is the big fear not the spiders and the snakes i think we've discussed this before but also they have a a delightful cartoon (laughs) showing the birds like taking it off, like getting their yeah. their backpacks on and getting them off. Yeah. It's really good. Um, cool, really cool story. Um, I like that. Yeah. Uh, I I like that as well. And I just imagine all of the cooperative magpies. But also, like this is a different finding, then, right? They wanted to track the magpies, but instead they learned something about their social abilities that they can help each other, which we didn't know before. So, still something. Still in this failure, something good happened. Let's say the the title is scientists attach tracking devices to magpies, but nobody asks the magpies. <laughs> yeah. So good. It's just quality reporting. <laughs> I think with that, we can end the show. Uh, thank you for listening. You can talk to us, send us stuff, um, give us feedback. You can rate us. Go go and rate us. That's always, always nice. We had a couple of nice ratings in the past. Sorry, I have to make a correction before we end. Okay. I pronounced the name last week wrong. Okay, I said Arcana, I think, and it's Archana. Um, that is all from us today. If you want to find out more, you can go to the website www.plantsandpipettes.com to read some stories. You can also speak to me on Facebook sometimes and Instagram more often. It's Plants and Pipettes. At Twitter, you can reach me. That's at Plants Pipettes. And as always, our opening and closing music is Carvana by Philip Gross. Goodbye. Goodbye.